morning. Uh, this morning, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Palm Sunday, but not a whole lot, because I'd rather tell stories instead. But it does involve a donkey, so we've got a donkey as a character, and that works, right? I can make it, I can weave it in, huh? All right. Uh, we're, we're going through a series called Storytime, and listen to this story. Hello, my Creekers. I've been going to my second home, Granite Creek, since the beginning of 2009. My husband and I got invited to the Sunday Thanksgiving dinner back in 2008. My first daughter was eight months old. My Nana, which is Aaron's grandma, but I call her my Nana, saved us a room at her table. Everything was so nice that night. I was amazed about how everyone there was so welcoming and so loving. During the music that was playing, Aaron held Nana's right arm, and in his left arm, he held me. And he whispered something into my ear. He says, sorry, I don't have a ring. Very confused, I told him back, who cares about a ring? I don't like jewelry anyway. He said, I know, but I, I really should have a ring Aaron, who cares? You don't understand. I want you to be my wife. I looked over at him and I asked him, Aaron, are you asking me to marry you? He says, yes, I am. That was my first night at Granite Creek. I've known God all my life, starting at a very young age. My parents would take me to Sunday school. I can remember when I was four and my dad telling me about God. He said, God knows everything, Sarah. My dad explained to me that God knows what you're going to do before you actually do it. And don't make God mad by doing bad things because God sees everything and knows everything. And that stuck with me even when I was a little girl. Growing up, I did not want to disappoint. I always tried to do things the right way. My parents became alcoholics. And by the age of eight, I became an adult. I learned how to cook and clean and take care of my younger siblings. At the age of 10, I became the referee for the fights because I had had enough of the meaningless, drunken arguments that led to nowhere. I would stand in the middle of my parents screaming and telling one of them to go to sleep and the other one to stay on the couch. As a teenager, I stayed home fearing my parents' fights might get even worse and I needed to be there to stop them. Now I still had fun. I played softball and I would paint and I would draw. My grandma lived next door and she was usually my escape. She would tell me to always go to church and to pray because Jesus saves. Now, just like any girl in school, I had a, I had a teenage crush on the cool guy but he only saw me as the, the girl that could throw well, and he never gave me the time of day. 
Now fast forward through my early 20s. My parents, they still drank, and I was still the referee, but now I, I pushed back. I would get in their faces too, and I would yell back at them. One night, I knew it was going to be a long night. My dad was stumbling around, and he had that blank look in his eyes of pure darkness. And I knew that he was completely blacked out. He was just on autopilot. This was the night that was different than any other night. This night, he got out a gun, and he was so pumped up and excited, and he was yelling at me, and he was saying, I have an idea. Watch what I'm going to do. And as he was yelling this, I was following his every move, ready to jump and to tackle him. He cocked his gun, and he put it to his head. Without thinking, I wrestled my dad to the ground, and I fought with him, trying to take the gun out of this drunk man's hands. In the middle of all this, he came to his senses, and he realized what he was doing, and he got pissed off at me because I was trying to take his gun away from him. He didn't even realize he was trying to kill himself. I called the cops. They took my dad away for the mandatory three days. Of course, the drinking didn't end, and neither did the rage or the violence that was inside of my dad. I looked forward to the sober times, though. There were few, but those that, that I did see, I held on to, because the sober times, that was my true dad. Time passed. I was at a party, and I ran into my longtime crush. He was amazed that I didn't have a boyfriend or any kids. I was amazed that he was still alive because he was not a very good boy. <laughs> we talked a lot that night, going back and forth, complaining about our old exes. Then about four months later, I got pregnant. I was 23 and scared. Aaron said, I want to tell your parents. And I thought, good. As he told my parents that I'm pregnant, he also told them that he was going to take care of me. From now on, out, from now on that he was going to take care of me and that I was going to move in with him. I was happy. Finally, I felt free. During my pregnancy, I knew my daughter that was growing inside me, I knew that she could hear in the womb. So on my nights off, I went to Bible study at a nearby church. I wanted my brand new daughter to grow up in church because I did when I was, at a, when I was young. And I know that that's what kept me growing strong. So I'd go on Wednesdays. Then I would, uh, when I went on maternity leave, I would start to go on Sundays. And Aaron started going with me too. I had my daughter, and just like a first-time parent, I was very protected of her. I missed going to church because I didn't want my Annabelle to get sick or cry. You know, you just want her to be happy and protect your little one. So we started going back to church about six months later. And then I would begin to get Sundays off. Then a Sunday, then the Sunday of Thanksgiving night came, and I will always cherish it. 
A couple of weeks later, I quit my job. Aaron said that he would take care of me and Annabella. My Nana invited us to the Living Nativity. And I was amazed that this small church did this, putting on a play for everyone to see, and it was free. I told Aaron, okay, I want to start going here. And we did, and we like it a lot. Then we started going on Wednesday night Bible studies too. Well, my Annabella was going to be turning one years old on Sunday for her first birthday. So I asked Pastor Larry if he could dedicate her, and he said yes, sure. And that, as parents, we are doing a good thing for her. But we should be doing it as husband and wife. Aaron said, well, okay, marry us then. Pastor Larry smiled. He told us, okay, go get the marriage license, and I'll marry you guys, and then I'll dedicate your daughter. My mom was so mad at me because she wanted to have a big wedding with all the wedding things. Nope, not me. No, thank you. I sent out invitations for the dedication and Annabelle's birthday party right after So if my invites planned on coming to the dedication, they got to see us get married too. I love, love, loved my wedding. It was during the second service, right after announcements. The only thing was is that my dad started drinking at 6 a.m. that morning. My dad was drunk and didn't come. He didn't go and see Annabella get dedicated. He didn't come to my very first party of my only daughter. I was so upset. But I have my Aaron right by my side to take care of me like he said he would. Two weeks later, I got pregnant again with my second daughter, Sophia. At this time, we moved into my parents' house. Still, the drinking continued, but still, I would go to church with my Annabella I had my Sophia when she was two months old, and we got a rental of our own. I had to go back to work to help to pay things, to pay for things. It was Sophia's turn to be dedicated, and on her birthday, just like Annabelle, because I wanted to be fair. But again, my dad chose to get drunk early, and he didn't see my daughter get dedicated or show up for her her first year's birthday. A little time passed, and for Wednesday nights, the church was doing a series called Alpha. The night of Alpha was about forgiveness, and I broke down, and I verbally said, I forgive my dad, but on this night, I forgave him from my heart. It was a big moment for me, because before, I would still, in my mind, I would not forgive my dad or his horrible behavior and his drinking. I felt better, and I told my my dad that night. I left after Alpha study, and I went to my dad's house, and I told my dad, I forgive you for all the important things that that you've missed. And that's it. Okay, that's it. And I still love you. Time passed, and I got pregnant with my son, Anthony. When I had my son Anthony, my dad came to see me in the hospital, and I was so excited my dad came. Plus, dad was sober, too. 
Anthony was a change for my dad because he was the first grandson in the family. For the past three Father's Days and birthdays, I've been wanting to take my dad out for lunch, but he had to be sober to go. Well, finally, I got to take my dad out for his birthday. By this time, I became good friends with Kim Robles. She sent me a text, Galatians 6, 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. My dad was shaking because he had no alcohol in his system that day. But he cried as we sang happy birthday to him. It was awesome, and I felt so proud of my dad. He still continued to drink, and sometimes out of control, and he would be horrible. I wouldn't let my kids see their grandpa. I never wanted them to feel the what I did as a child. I'm honest with my kids. I tell them, sorry, Papa drank too much, so we can't see him. Or Papa drank too much, and I don't want him here right now. It was Anthony's turn for his birthday and dedication, and guess what? My dad came to the dedication sober. My, my dad went to the birthday party after, too, and my heart was overwhelmed with joy and happiness. It just so happened that Anthony's first birthday was on the same day as our annual memorial picnic. So my dad got to go to church, and then he got to hang out with you Creekers, too. My dad still continues to drink, and there's a lot of, but there are not so many fights anymore. But last November, I got a call from my mom. She told me that my dad hit his head, and he couldn't stop bleeding, and called the ambulance. They took him to the hospital. I rode with her in the van. I sat with my dad at the hospital for three and a half hours. He, of course, was blacked out from the drinking and did not remember me being there. We left the hospital, and I held my dad's hands, and I looked him in the eyes, and I said, Dad, go to bed and don't drink anymore, please. Go to bed and go to sleep. And he responded and said, okay. The next morning, I called my mom, in, my mom to check in on how my dad was doing. He got nine staples in the back of his head. My mom burst into tears, telling me that dad attacked my brother and tried to go after him with a hammer in one hand and a machete in the other hand. My mom called the cops this time. I asked my mom, is this is what it's gonna take for you guys to stop drinking? She said, no more, Sarah, no more alcohol in this house. I did visit my dad in jail and got to hear his voice and see him. He was my dad from when I was very little, the man that would tell me about God, the man that was at my softball games and coached me, the sober man that I would always hang on to. My dad was in jail for 30 days, and he got out, and he was sober. And I got to have a sober Christmas with the, for the first time in my life. I was so happy. And then a sober New Year's and a sober Super Bowl. It was awesome. In January, my Annabelle asked to play softball, so we signed her up. And my dad came over, and he would coach her the same way that he coached me. And on March 1st was Annabelle's first game. We were all excited. 
But I think the excitement got the best of my dad because I could smell alcohol on him again. My heart broke. But it was about my daughter. It was about Annabelle. It was her night. So I was focused on her. I asked my mom, Dad is drinking again, huh? She looked at me like a deer caught in the headlights. My parents would lie to me as a kid so I wouldn't get upset. But I'm not that kid anymore. She acted like nothing happened and that I, was, I didn't know I was talking about. It's all lies. Then Saturday came. Annabelle had another game and a pizza party right after that. My parents came and they ordered a pitcher of beer for themselves. And my heart was broken. I thought that the drinking days were gone with my parents, I was, but I was wrong. Even though my parents choose to drink, I still choose to be strong. I still choose to be better than that for myself and for my kiddos. I will never feel, they will never feel the pain of my past. I choose to break the vicious cycle of being addicted to alcohol. Don't get me wrong. I have an occasional drink with my husband, but I do not get drunk. I know my limits, and plus it scares me to death because I know what happens when the drink takes over and there is no control. Only God is the one in control. He knows what will happen even before I do it. So I must make good choices because not only is he watching me, he's watching my children grow. I want to be the best example I can be for them. Thank you, my granite creakers. Sarah. The parable I picked for this is um, it's the parable of the Good Samaritan. And you might think, well, that doesn't quite fit because this is a story of faithfulness and this is a story of forgiveness and perseverance and being a good model. But there's more. The parable of the Good Samaritan does fit because Sarah was acting like the Samaritan. All of us are, are, should be familiar with the story. If you're not familiar with the story, you know the cultural references because they make cultural references of the Good Samaritans on the news, right? Whenever you're watching the news and somebody does a good deed for somebody that's unconditional or they don't know the person and they just give or they, you know, they do a heroic act and they're the Good Samaritan. So we all know the concept of the, of the Good Samaritan. But the issue of the Good Samaritan is one of forgiveness and unconditional love. See, there's two laws in the nature, in the universe. There's the law of the book, and then there's the law of love. And Jesus wants us to dedicate ourselves to follow the law of love. And what that means is you have to let go of your rights to be angry or your rights to be mad, and you have to forgive unconditionally and love. And it's very difficult to do. So what's the deal with the Samaritan? Who was he? 
Um, he was not a Jew. Some of you might know that. The Samaritan was not a Jew. It, it, it's kind of hard. You ever heard of like a, a Jack Mormon or a Jack Buddhist or a Jack Christian? You know what those are, right? No, I'm getting, okay. Um, a Jack Christian or a Jack Mormon or a Jack Buddhist is somebody that is born into the faith, but they're naughty, right? They're, they're cultural. Their faith is, is dependent on their culture. They don't, they don't follow the rules. Like they go to church, but they party on Friday. Hmm? Um, they don't follow the teachings of Jesus. Or, I mean, and just for the sake of, of argument, they don't follow the teachings of Buddha or the teachings of John Smith. But I think the term, I think the term originated with the Mormons. I'm not, I'm not going after Mormons today, but you know, the Jack Mormon is the one that, that usually comes up. And so in a sense... The Samaritans are, they, they call it, the Samaritans are kind of like Jack Jews, in a sense, in that, that they were not real Jews. Like the Jews, the Samaritans lived in the northern part of Israel, and they developed a, for the lack of a better term, this is, a, this is, this is history nerd coming out of me, but they developed their own cult of Judaism. And so they weren't pure Jews, and they, their blood was not pure. It was mixed in with, with the Palestine, Palestinians of the time. But they followed the rules. So in a sense, they were Jack Jews, but not really, because um, they followed their own set of laws, which were pretty much identical to the Torah. So this Samaritan... I, although he was a Samaritan, like if you took the label off of him and if you took the ethnicity off of him, he would be a Jew. He probably followed the law, maybe even better than most Jews at the time. But so he really wasn't a real Jew. So I'm just going to set that up. And if you want to turn that, turn to me to the Gospel of Luke. This is the only gospel that has this story in it, this parable. Starts in chapter 10. Verse 25. Now on occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must we do to inherit life? All right, now this is, this is that question is the question that everyone asks. What do I got to do to live forever? What do I have to do to be immortal. What do I have to do to make it into heaven? We have all asked that question. If you have not asked that question, there's something wrong with you. I ask it to myself. God, are we okay? <laughs> like if I got hit by a Mack truck, am I okay, <laughs> right? I don't know if that's like insecurity or what, but actually I think it's the fear of the Lord and I think it's a healthy thing to do. God, am I okay with you right now? And so this teacher of the law, this rabbi of sorts, this professor, the one that knows everything, asks Jesus, what do we got to do to be immortal? What do we got to do to live forever? And Jesus quotes the Shema, something out of Deuteronomy. And he says, um, what is written in the law, he replies, how do you read it? Jesus is asking, how do you read your book? How do you read the law? He answered him, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Hmm? 
He said, you have answered correctly, Jesus replied. You do this and you will live. Pretty big statement, right? You love God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. It's a holistic approach to loving God. You have to love him with your whole being. All of you has to love him. Are you giving him all? And then the second, which is like it, but is different, is you have to love your neighbor as yourself. All right? But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? There we go. Tough one, right? Who is my neighbor? All right, who am I supposed to help? Okay, for us, I don't know, maybe we kind of get it. I think hopefully we get it. Like we're supposed to help everybody, right? It doesn't really matter if they're Christian or non-Christian, if they, whatever horrible thing that they've done or not done. I mean, we know this. We, we have been coming to church long enough to know that, okay, our neighbor is anyone that is around us. Our neighbor is anyone that is in our community. And hang on to this one. Our neighbor is anyone that is in our family. Is It is anybody that we are connected to. And sometimes it's a lot easier to love I don't mean this flippantly, but sometimes it's easier to love the homeless person than it is to love somebody within our own families, right? Do you see what I'm saying? But guess what? That person that you're living with or that person that you go to Thanksgiving dinner with, um, they're, they're your neighbor too. You just share the same blood, but they're your neighbor too. The reason why Jesus brings this up is because Jews were in the habit of taking care of only Jews. And this is why he jumps into this parable. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. All right, think about the map. The Samaritans, they live in the north of Israel. Jerusalem's kind of in the middle. Jericho is in the south. Right? Okay, so this man, what is he? Do we know what nationality he is? We don't. Doesn't say. Most people assume that he's a Jew, but we just don't know. And the reason why we don't know is because Jesus was very intentional not to give this guy a label. So we don't know what he is. But he's not a Samaritan. I'll go that far. So a man was going from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he fell into the hands of robbers, they stripped him of his clothes and they beat him and they went away and they, leave, they left him for half dead. Okay? So this is bad, right? You don't want to be in this situation. You're going from a holy city to a not-so-holy city. You're on a journey. It's probably for business and that you get beat up. And so the person that is laying in the ditch, half dead, not only do we not know who he is, we can't identify him either because his clothes have been stripped off of him. Okay, that's a, that's a pretty traumatic thing. But what does Shakespeare say about the clothes? 
It's the clothes that make the man, right? So we don't even know, we can't even, we can't even discern what kind of man this is based off of his clothes because his clothes are gone too. And on top of that, he has blacked out. So he can't even respond. He can't even say who he is. Right? And the Samaritan ministers to somebody who doesn't know who he is. He could be an Ishmaelite. You know who the Ishmaelites are now? Who are the Ishmaelites? Those are our Muslims. So he could be an Ishmaelite. He could be a Moabite. He can be an Amalekite. He can be a Hittite. He can be all these people that the Jews hate. There's no way to identify who he is. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw the man, he passed on the other side. All right, so who's passing him by? We have a priest and a Levite. You guys know that the Levites helped the priests? So the priest came out of the, hair, the, the lineage of Aaron, but the Levites were dedicated to serving the temple. So basically, you got two religious folks that passed this guy up. And then the Samaritan. But a Samaritan, as he traveled down, where he, where, where, excuse me, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey. See, there's the donkey reference for Good Friday. I mean, I mean for not Good Friday, for, for uh, Palm Sunday. There's your, there's your donkey reference right there. Took him in, took him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and he gave it to the innkeeper. He says, look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any other extra expenses. Which of these three things do you think, which, excuse me, which of these three do you think was the neighbor to the man who fell in the hands of the robbers? The experts in the law, the rabbis, they said, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus told them, go and do likewise. Now, again, the misconception is that Samaritans are jack Jews. Actually, they're just a carbon copy of a Jew. So for this Samaritan to jump in the pit and handle an unclean body of a nationality of somebody he didn't know. I mean, the guy could even be dead. Okay? He is willing to defile himself. What is that supposed to mean? That means as a person, as a believer or as a, as a child of God, for you to, to handle somebody that is naked and unclean and dirty and possibly dead or who could die on you while you're handling them, ceremonially you become unclean. And it's a huge problem because it's like you got, uh, you get, you get like 
spiritual cooties or something. And you have to, <laughs> you can't do anything. When you, when you get the cooties, you're off of work. You have, to, you have to go outside of the city or outside of the camp. And you have, to, you have to quarantine yourself because you have cooties. And what, hap- what happens when you're self-employed or you're on commission and you get sick? What happens? You don't get paid. It's a huge expense. And this guy is willing to take that risk to help those. And the Jews knew exactly what was going on. He's saying, look, if the Samaritan can do it, you can defile yourselves too for your buck, for your neighbors. So who's your neighbor? It's anybody in need. It's anybody that's hurting. It's anybody in your family. There's three things that I just want to point out on this. These are three things that Sarah did. Dealing with some very difficult issues inside of her family. Her own father is dealing with the demons of alcohol. I think I mean that literally, too. You okay with that? Yeah. I think I mean that literally. The Samaritan, what did he have? He had pity on the person. Look, there's, there is, you, you've got to have, before you can forgive, you have to have pity. You have to empathize. You actually literally have to take yourself out of your own selfish little body, mind, box thing that we have, our, you know, this internal dialogue that we have going on, that it's, it's just about me thinking about me and all of my needs and all of my pain, and I wish everybody would pay attention to me, and you literally have to put yourself into somebody else's situation. But yeah, I'm not a drunk jerk like that. You know, you need to do that. You need to understand, you cannot empathize for somebody in need and pain, and you cannot forgive them unless you put yourself in their shoes. And with all the pain that our sister had to go through with her dad, she was able to do that. So in order for us to be a good Samaritan, believe it or not, you actually have to forgive that person. You have to empathize for that person. You have to put yourselves in that in their shoes. You have to give them, here's the big word, you have to give them grace. Can you give them grace? You have to give them grace. And only then are we able to forgive. How about you understand? That person is so bad. That person is so dirty. That person is an alcoholic. That person is so unclean. If I touch them, I'm going to get cooties. Hmm? It's just very difficult to touch unclean people because we lose. And you have to be willing to lose. You have to be willing to be quarantined for loving. So that's the first thing. You have to be willing to, to forgive, empathize and forgive. It's probably two points. Let's make it two. Empathize, then forgive. Third point. Samaritans heal. Did you catch that? So not only is he pulling this person out, 
he, he gets his hands dirty, and he pours the oil and the wine. The wine was used for healing, I'm sure. And so, uh, like, you have to desire to heal the person. Now, we all deal with this. Whenever you go to work, especially when you get on the freeway, you have to deal with the homeless folks, right? And sometimes it's easier to pay them off because it doesn't require a lot of time, right? And it does something to your conscience. You know, I gave the guy a buck. But what the guy really needs is the guy needs to be healed. Now, I know it's very difficult to get out of the car and try to minister to somebody in that situation because they, maybe you don't speak their language or you just, you just can't, you know, you don't have it, you know, I don't know. Give it a shot. I don't know. Try it. But if you really do empathize and if you really do care for the homeless, that means that you have to dedicate time to heal them. If there's somebody in your family that is really hurting and lost and struggling, um, you could give them a pep talk, but it's also going to require time. And time heals all wounds. I believe that it's true. Time heals all wounds. And so a Samaritan heals. And we can see Sarah attempting to be like Jesus and heal her dad. That's tough stuff, right? Because for me, one strike, two strikes, you're out. You didn't show up to my kid's birthday party. You didn't show up to my kid's dedication. You're out. I'm not going to, you don't get a second chance. But she did. Because she wants, she's a healer. If you know her, you know that's true. She walks in this anointing of healing. She's got a sweet disposition about her. She's got a sweet spirit. I don't think I've ever heard a negative word come out of her mouth, ever. This is as negative as I've ever heard it get. She's always smiling. Guess who she cares about more than herself? You, you creakers. My creakers, right? See, she introduced herself like Paul would. My creakers. She, inter- she introduced her letter, her epistle with, with love. I gotta quit. Ah, <laughs> I, gotta, I gotta preach a second service too. <laughs> All right. And then last point. Is that the law of love sacrifices. It's so, we're so busy, aren't we? We're so inconvenienced. It's so difficult at times in our society. But the law of love sacrifices. It gives. And it gives, ready for this? Unconditionally. Unconditionally. The law of love gives without anything in return, whether either it's uh, material or emotional. There is, no, there is no expecting to get anything in return. So when the Samaritan not only made himself get cooties, but he also gave the silver coins and also said, all right, I will, I will return and I will pay the rest. Um, That's what Jesus does. I, if I get the band to come on up to the front, as they're on their way up, I'll, I'll wrap up with this thought. That's what Jesus does. Look, you know what? The honesty of this letter. 
I mean, we all were hoping that dad would get sober and be in church today, right? But that's not the reality of it, is it? Because we know that this side of heaven, we will not have perfection and that we will not have peace. And we can do really good. Like we can, we can go from glory to glory. We can, we can identify with, with Hosanna. We can identify with the, the triumphal victory. We can have a victory mindset and we should. But we also have to come to the realization that everything on this side of heaven is not going to be okay. You're still going to get sick. Your loved ones are still going to die. You're still going to get a flat tire. Bad things happen to good people. It's the reality. But here's the beautiful thing, is that Jesus is also the good Samaritan. And he's coming back someday. And when he returns, he will pay the debt in full. He's already won the victory. He's already overcome sin and death. The devil is still, he's, he's got the eviction notice, but he's still like wreaking havoc on the planet and kicking walls. He is a dying branch. He has no power besides what is left inside of him. The only victory that he has is what we give him. But when Jesus comes back, the final bit is paid. Those last two silver coins that Jesus returns with, it's over and we no longer have to deal with sin and death and disappointment. He's coming back. Let's pray. Now can the ushers come to the front here. (laughs) Heavenly Father, we thank you that our Savior rode in on a beast of burden. And that he is that good Samaritan that pulls us out of that pit and out of that muck and out of that mire. And that he came into our reality. He came into time. He came onto this dirty planet that's fallen apart. And he defiled himself. He gave himself our cooties so that we could be saved. And he put us on that victory donkey so that we could be saved. Oh, Jesus, we are so indebted to you. We are so thankful for you. And I am so thankful that we have brothers and sisters in this church that get it, that get it 100%. Transform us, God. Continue to transform us into your likeness so that we can be more like you on your day for Easter. We love you, God. Amen.